As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, June 10th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and Facebook. And you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible, with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com minds. And this episode is sponsored by Harry's. Harry's is disrupting the shaving industry by offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. Plus, right now they're selling a really nice limited edition Father's Day shave set. Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. In science, what would you say is the most dangerous and yet beautiful discovery of all of mankind. Oh, beautiful. I mean, I guess something to do with the atomic bomb. Yeah, I think that's what I would say too. But uh, our guest this week, Siddhartha Mukherjee, says it might be the gene. Wow. Yeah, what do you think of when you think of the gene? You know, I think of a lot of potential cures for people that have genetic diseases. Uh, I also think about understanding, you know, where our behaviors and other traits come from. I, I, you know, to me, it sounds exciting. I can see if you're starting to, you know, mess with genes like a eugenics or, you know, someone who's particularly racist and that that could be problematic. But I also think that we as a society are, are moving beyond that. So it doesn't seem like such a big deal to me. But I know with the advent of gene editing, who knows what's ahead of us. And, and I think this is an exciting idea because the gene has become significantly of more focus in science, especially over the last couple of years. We heard about gene therapy for so long in the early 2000s. And now we're starting to see results from gene therapy. We've heard so much about CRISPR partially because I keep talking about CRISPR on this podcast so much. Uh, But the advent of gene editing is here today and the acceleration of it. And now we've heard that George Church is putting together a synthetic genome itself, just totally constructed out of air. So we are at the advent of an interesting place with the gene. And I think that's why 
uh, Siddhartha took this on this time. He's the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, uh, The Emperor of All Maladies, which was a stunning history of all of cancer. And I guess that wasn't a broad enough topic for him. So he decided to tackle the gene because as he sees it, we're at the pivotal place in the history of genetics right now and looking backwards towards its history and evolution as a projection to where it goes in the future is a critical thing for everyone to understand right now. And, you know, he's an oncologist. So to me, it kind of makes sense to go from cancer to genes. since essentially, especially as we learn more about cancers, we understand that there's, you know, a big component that uh, involves our genes and how they're expressed. I'm not going to turn down any book by him. I, I consider him our science poet laureate because of his wonderful prose. But he's faced a lot of criticism about this book. Yeah, I, I saw that. I, yeah. So he faced a lot of criticism mostly because a set of scientists read an excerpt of hit, of this book in The New Yorker, which in which he discussed epigenetics. Now, to be fair, I haven't been part of many epigenetics conversations, which didn't lead to some disagreement. I think it's a controversial topic just because of that there is no definition for what epigenetics even is to people prescribing out to the future well ahead of what the research is. And so a lot of scientists criticize that he overstated the particular interactions and gene signaling related to histones as opposed to some more commonly referred to and well understood gene triggers. And, you know, and in some ways, there's a danger when you have an excerpt from a book in The New Yorker, because anybody who reads the excerpts reads it as a standalone piece. And it's possible that other parts of his book cover some of these topics that from what I saw, a lot of scientists were, you know, saying that there were a lot of omissions. And, you know, here we have an excerpt from a book. And maybe part of the point of the excerpt, of course, is to get people to read the book. And so you can't give away everything. Yeah. Is, is that the case here? You know, I read the whole thing. And there's definitely omissions. But he wrote a book called The Gene. And yeah, there's going to be omissions. And when I got to page 500, I was like, you know, I've had enough of the gene. <laughs> like, you know, there was there's the sin of omission can be mentioned. But I feel like from a scientist perspective, I think that's a bit of complaining uh, because you can't we you can't write a fifteen hundred page popular science book and say here's everything we know about the gene. Now there are some oversimplifications and de definitive reaches I think that are, are are fair to criticize, especially when highlighting the power of genetics. But I think in the interview you'll see he's quick to point out that gene genetics are really small part of the total equation. Great. Well, you know, this is a topic that's actually been in a lot of different aspects of science recently where you have, you know, especially with this explosion of TED Talks, you have scientists getting up there and essentially having to distill their ideas into a very marketable package, um, one that keeps the audience interested and gives them this kind of, you know, wow moment. Uh, so I've been recently, you know, thinking about some of the... Uh, criticisms of Angela Duckworth's work, for example, on grit. There's been some back and forth there about, you know, is is grit really a whole new thing or is it just an element of conscientiousness and should we be overstating it? And, and it, you know, in, in some ways, some of these conversations read a little bit like, okay, here are some scientists who, yeah, fair enough, maybe there's some making, you know, some good points about overreaching. And I think that that's always uh, definitely worth doing. But is there also a little bit of envy at play here where people are sort of like, well, here's a person who is articulate and is getting a lot of attention. And, you know, how does that play in? I don't 
I know that's a good question because he is definitely, at least in Sid's case, he's definitely a different kind of science writer because of how broad of a topic he tends to approach and the kind of writing that he does in, uh, instill. And I do think that New Yorker piece, if read in absentia of the whole book, does give you like, oh, this is all he's saying about epigenetics. Like I would walk away being kind of mad about that too. So I think there's some legitimacy there. The envy question's a good one. I'll turn it on its head a little bit. How much is this the specter of Jonah Lehrer still here? Yeah, and I think I think these are reasonable things to talk about. And and I think the thing that I was really impressed with, at least in the conversation around the concept of grit, is that, you know, ultimately there was a conversation that people were having. And I think that the Duckworth work still came out as it's worth you know, reading, it's worth learning about. But of course, there are caveats. And, and in, a, in, a, in a way, I feel more informed about conscientiousness, having read about this, you know, conversation that people are having. And so, you know, ultimately, I think that kind of dialogue is a good thing. Um, I just and, I, and in, in the case of, of the grit work, I feel like there was people were pretty polite about it. But um, th- in some of the epigenetics criticisms, I felt like, well, maybe we need, I don't know, I mean, do you think that we should have some civility in the dialogue or does that does it, it not doesn't matter, bother ultimately? me i mean i think that's how scientific conferences run i think there is they're direct in their critiques so and i think the only difference here is we saw a much more public display of the kind of interactions that are usually behind the scenes but i will add i don't really still know what epigenetics is <laughs> after this discussion so i'm not sure how much it added to anything right so on that note we'll take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with siddhartha Mukherjee. This episode is sponsored by Audible, with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by signing up at audible.com minds. If you're interested in the only book about physics that has made Indre cry, you could check out last week's guest Sean Carroll's latest book, The Big Picture, On the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself. It's on Audible and narrated by Sean Carroll himself. And Audible has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title, any time, no questions asked. Once again, that's audible.com minds. And this episode is sponsored by Harry's. Harry's is disrupting the shaving industry by offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. Plus right now they're selling a really nice limited edition Father's Day shave set. They actually sent me one and it's pretty great. The handle is this really nice matte black and you get a cool looking stand and shave cream and it's all just really nice looking. Plus they have a custom engraving option, which is cool. So go to harrys.com right now and redeem this special offer for fans of Inquiring Minds. Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase with promo code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter code inquiringminds at checkout and get $5 off. Get your dad something he will actually use this Father's Day. Siddharth from Mukherjee, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you so much. So let's start. You wrote a book that was a incredible, stunning tale on the history of cancer. What brought you forward to the gene as a next step? Um, you know, this book is uh, a synthesis of three different strands. 
The first one is personal. Um, I grew up with uh, the history of uh, mental illness in my family, uh, particularly schizophrenia and bipolar disease in my two uncles. And one of them, one of my uncles came to live with me, live with my family when I was a child. Um, and then another cousin from that same lineage from my paternal side got diagnosed with schizophrenia and what was institutionalized. So right from my childhood, long before I became a doctor or a scientist, the uh, the shadow of uh, hereditary illness was uh, part of my family. And at some point in time, we could not not talk about it, um, and we did. And there was a, certainly the, the question of what was transmitted and not transmitted. Um, so that story was very much in my consciousness. That vulnerability was in my consciousness, even when I became a doctor, even as I was writing um, Improvol Maladies. The second strand was... Um, if that was if the first strand was of the past, the second was of the future. I, in my own laboratory, I began to find, and you know, there there were amazing discoveries made in 2012, not by me, but but by others um, that allowed um, people like me, cancer biologists, cancer geneticists, to make changes in, in the human genome in in cells, potentially in, in embryonic stem cells. Um, you know, we've gene editing techniques, CRISPR, Cas9. Um, these technologies became more and more prominent in my lab, things that we couldn't do 10 years ago in terms of editing or tampering with the human genome was where it became impossible to do. So there was that heightened awareness that this book had to be write, written now because we were doing things with genes that we couldn't do five years ago. And then finally, um, you know, the book also grew out of um, Emperor because um, I was studying, studying cancer genetics, cancer genes, and the natural flip side of that is, of course, normal genes, what, what normalcy is. Um, and so that was all these three strands came together in, in, in this book. So let's start with the genetic basis of disease before we get to some of these new technologies that are reshaping how we approach them. We've long held this, this idea that there are certain diseases that genetics has a huge influence on, but it's never been the complete picture. Yeah, I think it's worthwhile think of in, thinking of diseases in terms of a spectrum. Um, and there are words there, the words, uh, technical words that I think are very important to know as we move forward. So the spectrum ranges from diseases where if you have the gene, the chances that you will have the disease are highly, highly likely. Um, Huntington's disease is one of them. Um, and by, by, by when I say when you have the gene, of course, everyone has the gene. It's, it's the uh, variant version of the gene or the mutated version of the gene that's, uh, that, that's in question here. If you have the variant version of the Huntington's disease gene, it's highly likely that you will develop um, Huntington's disease during a lifetime. If you have a ver uh, the mutated version of the cystic fibrosis gene, two, two versions, it's very likely that you'll develop cystic fibrosis, although the disease can come in different forms in different people. And then in the middle of the spectrum are d diseases in which there's not one gene but many genes. And the likelihood that you'll get the disease if you have that combination is lowered because there's an interaction between genes, between genes and environments, and genes and chance. Um, so these are things like the things that we know in common, diabetes, mental illness, schizophrenia, among other, other things. The chronic diseases that are plain. Many of the chronic diseases, exactly right. And, and, and these, are, these are, are diseases where the, you know, these are the diseases that are most commonplace, that we know the most uh, about in terms of uh, popular culture, as it were. Uh, again, heart disease, schizophrenia, um, etc., and then the final end of the spectrum are diseases where, you know, uh, uh, most of the influences from the environment or most of the influences from chance. Obviously, if you, you know, if you fall off your bicycle and break your bones, 
um, that fracture is, uh, is, is related to chance, has something perhaps to do with your genes, how you repair the fracture, but that's a disease or illness or a, or a, or a momentary uh, illness that is, is entirely related to chance. So it's important to think about illness in that spectrum so that we can clarify what the relationship is between genes and, and the illness. So as we start to map forward to these new technologies that are allowing us to manipulate uh, our genes in ways that we've never been able to before, how do we take into account this formula that you laid out? Well, I think the chances that we will intervene on either medically or genetically intervene or gene therapy-wise intervene on diseases that are monogenic and and, and highly penetrant, uh, the, the, the first category I talked about, uh, tell us uh, what penetrant is. Yeah, so so penetrance again, going 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 back to this idea, is, is that 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 if you have the gene, the chances that you will develop the feature that's encoded by the gene, illness in this case, are very high. Um, if it, if it, if if it's hundred percent penetrant, then or hundred percent you know has a hundred percent, another word expressivity, then the chances that you will develop that illness is very high. So those, particularly the the ones that cause extraordinary suffering. I think we um, we are likely to think about um, using genetic interventions in various forms, gene therapies, um, prenatal diagnosis, um, and others to to try to um, try to get a handle on those diseases, try to treat and cure those diseases. And you mentioned a number of technologies that are being used to edit now, especially CRISPR-Cas9, a number of others uh, that are following the synthetic genome. It brings up a question of ethics. Absolutely. Yeah. Ethics are very central to this debate. And so how should people approach the language of the ethics around this when it's still in, in its infancy as a science topic? Well, I, I, I suggest that, that you know, there are at least three kinds of ideas or three kinds of guidelines that we might think about as we move forward. The first is, um, the, first, the, the simplest is that, you know, when, when we think about genetic interventions, we should really be reserving genetic interventions for things that cause extraordinary suffering. Um, so, um, you know, height, uh, enhancement of height doesn't, I, I think, cause extraordinary suffering. So I think that's at least one kind of criteria that we could use. And there's a debate about what extraordinary suffering is, but at least we know what the outer limits of, of that is or are. Um, the second kind of criteria I, I think that's helpful is, again, penetrance. So the kinds of things that you want to intervene on genetically are the ones that cause disease in a kind of one-to-one -one manner. If you have the gene, you have the disease, uh, or, 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 and you have the suffering that comes with the disease, as opposed to things that, where the link between the disease is very weak. You know, again, things that you might want to tamper or alter, and you could have all sorts of unintended consequences. Um, I think we should reserve, uh, we should try to avoid those as much as possible. But some of these issues are cultural, because editing of a human embryo inside the United States very difficult ethical topic to discuss, uh, to discuss, but in China, maybe not so much. Yes, I, as you know, I mean, in 2015, the the Chinese attempted, uh, Chinese scientists attempted the uh, the uh, attempted to uh, edit human genes in a in, a, in an embryo. They were all non-viable embryos. The experiment had was naturally terminated because the embryos could not be implanted and become viable. Nonetheless, they had crossed a breach. And um, when when the scientists were asked if they would do this, do this again, they would. They said, in fact, they would attempt it again with better technologies as they come along to intervene in human embryos. Uh, to me, at least, the 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 prospect that's most worrisome is not the editing of whole human embryos, but it's the proof of principle that you can em edit human embryonic stem cells 
and then make sperm and eggs out of those cells, um, and then thereby sort of backdoor your way into transgenic uh, transgenic humans. I think you know there, there uh, you can have a much for various reasons you can have much much tighter scientific control about what you're doing, and I think that that's much more worrisome to me. Um, and, and and you know I liken this moment to to a moment in in the history of uh, you know when they made the atomic bomb. It, there was a point of time when it became very clear that each of the individual steps that would lead to the creation of the bomb were achievable. Yeah, that you didn't have to make the final product, but each of the individual steps became achievable. And that itself creates a kind of uh, a terrifying moral conundrum. And you think we're reaching that point with genetics now? Because you did allude to in the book that you called it one of the most powerful and dangerous ideas in all of science. Well, the, the, the dangerous idea in, in, in science, of course, refers to much of its history. Um, you know, I talk about, in the book, I talk about eugenics and, and all the crises of eugenics. I, I don't think that we're going to go into, you know, a new world of Nazi eugenics in the United States. I really don't. But I do think that, that, that there is a, the specter of personalized eugenics is, is, is part, of our, part of our future, uh, in which we, for instance, sequence all the genes of our children, our unborn children, or really unborn eggs, and screen them and potentially implant only the ones that uh, that are desirable. Now, of course, this might alleviate various forms of, of, of suffering, but the, we need to know what the unintended consequences of these kinds of technologies is or are before we sort of gleefully or blithely embark on, on this kind of personalized eugenics. This naturally leads into the idea of that uh, genetics entering the political spectrum. Yes. Because the, there is a discourse that it seems like you're trying to shape here, that we need to think about this before it is thrust upon us. Absolutely. I think that, and, and this needs to be thought about not in the laboratories or in tissue culture hood rooms or in medical boardrooms uh, or corporate boardrooms for the matter, but, but in, in a way that the public is really engaged with this discussion, a larger discussion as to what we will do with these technologies, what we will unleash or do to human beings, or the conception of human beings with these technologies. But uh, let me play devil's advocate for a second. CRISPR is a very technical technology that is is well beyond, it's complicated, lack of a better term. So how is genetics intersecting with the politics of today in a way that uh, the every person can really relate to it? Well, two things. First of all, I mean, CRISPR itself is surprisingly easy to use. That's part of the reason I wrote this book. I began to understand that oh, these, the gene editing, at least, is actually strikingly easy to use. Um, I, I, I don't think that, you know, someone's going to sit in the garage and make uh, human embryos with CRISPR. But I do think that the ease with which this can be done means that it be dispersed internationally. And laboratories around the world, as you know, already are trying to do this in human embryos. But that's not, you know, that's not the only thing that CRISPR is not only only technology. There are gene therapeutic technologies that are coming along the line. Uh, most importantly, uh, prenatal genetic diagnosis and implantation is also a genetic technology, um, if, if in some ways more powerful than CRISPR because you don't have to change the genes. You can just select the kinds of embryos you want, you want to implant. So um, I, think, I think that that coupled with gene sequencing that allows you to nominate and figure out what genes are changed or mutated in, in cells is, is a powerful technology and has great use, great use. But we just need to make sure that we have a, a, an appropriate debate about what, what happens in the future before we move forward. At the same time, you argue in the book there's a number of, of current 
cultural issues, whether it's issues around sexuality or gender or race that have a strong genetic link but aren't talked about from that spectrum. Right. So it's important to know that even if, if there are things that, of, and I'll talk about them in, in a second, but there are things about one's identity that have strong genetic links. But that also doesn't mean that there are single genes for these things. This is a very important distinction to make, and I make it very clearly. Now, how do we know that there are strong genetic links? Because if you take identical twins and you study them, particularly identical twins that have been separated at birth, if you study these twins, as these have been studied in longitudinally, they share surprising features, surprising features of identity and temperament and choice. Anxieties are shared and so forth. So things that you had might have attributed to more evanescent or chance-related factors in, in, in human behavior or development actually turn out to have genetic basis. Now, that is not, saying, that is not to say that, that only one gene governs these. Identical twins, remember, share not one gene, but they share all 20,000 or 30,000 of their genes and everything that lies in between those genes as well. So, in other words, this correlation or this similarity drops dramatically between siblings. And of course, drops even more dramatically if you compare cousins. So we know that not, not one gene is involved, multiple genes are involved. And so the chances that we can intervene on those multiple genes in any therapeutic way is, is um, I think, is, is pretty, pretty small. However, even knowing the fact that genes dominate these, um, these kinds of ideas of identity changes the way we think about identity. It, it changes the way we think about the relationship, at least, between nature and nurture um, in human identity. Let's talk about genes and the environment, which is a big question. Is it your genes? Is it your environment? Which has led to the oft-discussed but poorly understood term epigenetics, which is a f frequent topic in your book. So um, first let me talk about genes and environment, then I'll talk about epigenetics in a second. I mean, the, the relationship between genes and environment, we have to figure out first that it really depends on what question you're asking. So I'll give you one very clear example. If, if you ask me the question, is gender anatomy dictated by genes or environment? I would say gender anatomy is strikingly, strikingly dictated by one gene, a gene called SRY. Um, it sits, happens to sit on the Y chromosome. If you have it, your gender anatomy is going to be male. If you don't have it, your gender anatomy is going to be female. We know this because if you have a person who is, has chromosomal maleness, XY, but just that one gene is inactivated, they will develop into, anatomy-wise, they will develop into females, regardless of what environment they're put in. Gender identity, on the other hand, is much more complicated and is much, much more related. Obviously, there's a genetic component to this. But outside genetics, there's also many other components uh, we know, some cultural components, um, et cetera. So, so that's much more complicated, even though in gender identity, genes have a strong influence, um, even, even, in that, in, even in that arena. So that's just one example. And, and then now touching upon what epigenetics is. Epigenetics is, um, it refers to the idea that the regulation of, of genes um, in different, you can take the same genome, and by regulating it in different ways, um, you can get very different outcomes out of the same genome. Um, Epigenetics try to solve a very simple question, which is the question of epigenesis, which is how do you take one genome and make very, very different cells out of that same genome? And how do you take that different cells and make different responses to the environment out of that same genome? Now, what's the answer? The answer is we know there are things called transcription factors, uh, proteins that regulate 
how the genome is deployed. Um, these are kind of master conductors of the genome. They play out one symphony in one kind of cell, in your blood cell, play a different kind of symphony out in your brain cell. And in order to do this, they have to have many other collaborators. Um, they have to um, recruit other um, factors. And this process explains epigenesis, which is how cells become acquire very different fates out of the same uh, same genus out of the same genome and why is that becoming so much more of a focus now in the scientific community um, it's becoming a focus because number one it's very poorly understood people are trying to understand what exactly these you know what exactly happens downstream of these master regulators uh, transcription factors and so forth one idea that's been very attractive is you know obviously you can't easily change the genome but if you change the way that the genome responds, um, if you change the way, it's, it's the way genes are deployed, you might be able to have effects on, on, uh, on cells and bodies that you can't do very simply. Um, so the, the medical community is particularly interested in all of this because they want to change the way the genome is deployed, whether by, of course, the, 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 the topmost level, whether by changing transcription factors, um, these proteins that regulate or modulate the genome, or maybe by changing the way the, the, the genome is um, deployed in different cells. Uh, you could have the potential to um, change the way the cells behave in time and space and have potential therapeutic effects. So all of those drive the interest in changing um, the fundamental way the genes are used. I want to track back to something you said at the very beginning, that you wrote this book partially because of your own personal story. And in a way, even though you've spent your career as an oncologist, this is a more personal story because of how genetics has has shaped your your family history. Uh, after delving into uh, this arena and knowing that you have family history of schizophrenia, you've had um, a number of different cases of, of mania emerge. Does that approach, it, has that affected your own relationship with your genetics? Do you want to know more? Um, I personally don't want to know anymore. I mean, partly because I think schizophrenia, with schizophrenia, of course, we now know that there are so many genes involved. And each of the individual genes, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like, uh, it'll probably be like, there, there are probably going to be many variants of schizophrenia. Thankfully, the one that is tracking through my family doesn't seem to have, um, you know, doesn't seem to express itself, as it were. Uh, across multiple generations in multiple individuals. It's very sporadic. The penetrance, you might say, is very low or, or lower. Um, we don't know the answer to these questions, but I've decided actually personally not to sequence my genome because I'm not sure what information I would get from it and how useful it would be and how it might change my relationship with my children. But that's an individual choice. That uh, is that the choice that you also recommend for some of your patients, depending on their situation? It depends on the disease. I mean, so for instance, you know, if there's a strong history of breast cancer in the family and someone's dying to sequence their genomes, I would encourage them to. Um, uh, although you can obviously sequence single genes, but just to remind ourselves, you know, even with even if you know all the genetics of, of even if you have a family history of breast cancer, the number of known genes in that in that family history still. Uh, may, may not tell you what your individual variant is that's causing your breast cancer. So I really depend, I really focus on individuals and depending on their risk, um, I ask them to, you know, either undergo selective genetic testing or uh, more comprehensive genetic testing. But I, I, I rarely recommend the comprehensive variant unless it's a very rare disease that, that I'm trying to understand. You've had an incredibly successful career as an oncologist. You have a research lab uh, exploring genetics and you 
uh, but you've put years upon years upon years of effort into writing these thorough uh, tomes ar around these critical scientific issues. Uh, why put so much effort into writing and communication? Well, I think I think these, you know, both of those these books grew out of personal stories. But the personal stories, of course, encompass very large stories. This is a book about you and me. It's a book about our families. Uh, you know, we think about genes, and as soon as you say the word gene, you think you know it's someone else doing something in some laboratory somewhere. But of course, genes are the essence of heredity. It's the essence of what you and I inherited. And inheritance is not something that, that, is, that is, lies outside popular culture. It's very much part of our everyday culture. I wanted to explore that. And as, as I said before, the, the, the personal history of my family was, 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 was the final impetus um, to explore this. Thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. So in the midst of that conversation, it made me wonder about sequencing, you know, and uh, I was surprised that he decided not to sequence his genome because he felt that that would affect his relationship with his children, which I hadn't really considered before. Does that does that jive with you? I personally share his skepticism of the genetic test as it exists. Now, and to be clear, it wasn't that he wouldn't sequence his entire genome. Not that I don't think many people are offering that, like sequence your entire genome. But the fact is that the genetic tests as they exist today probably don't tell you very much. And so if I was in his shoes and I had some history of schizophrenia, which isn't exactly a genetic disease, but it well, has it's, some... It does. It, it's about 50% comorbidity. Yeah, yeah I mean, but it's uh, not... Concordance rate, sorry. Yeah, but it's not like Huntington's or cystic right. fibrosis, which is closer to 100%. Where you're in this gray area already, well, is heaping more gray information on top of that useful? And I find it utterly fascinating that somebody that's very knowledgeable on the topic and a practicing physician is like, you know, more more information is not helpful right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I, I remember too, getting, you know, certain genetic tests done when I was pregnant and finding out like, oh, your risk for, you know, your child having this disease has gone from one in 100,000 to one in 10,000. And like, that's a tenfold increase. That sounds really scary. But I'm like, there's a 99, you know, chance or whatever. Like, I guess it's, that's not quite right. But you know, there's, there's a very small chance that my child will be born with this condition. So, you know, I see where he's coming from. But I, I, I guess I just assumed that someone who is, you know, really studying uh, this, this material closely would still want that information about themselves. He's still a physician. And remember, when you got that test, you probably had to talk to a genetic counselor, right? Absolutely. Right. So there is a sense of a an expert or some sort of knowledge base that you have to go through to get this. That's not exactly how the genetic tests of today operate, especially the 23andMe type tests, which is really what I was asking about. What I kind of am still stuck with after that interview was that there is a politics to genetics. And that was one that I never thought about genetics in that way, that we're starting to enter a political discussion about the place it has in our world and it's a it, it certainly hasn't been discussed in the in the US political election nor do i expect it to uh with you know certain candidates in the foray but it had me wonder if if that's useful or not. Well, I think, no, I mean, I think this is something that actually in, in some ways has plagued the field of genetics for decades, ever since, you know, we cloned Dolly, not we, but they, 
Um, <laughs> what, are you, what were you doing on that secret trip to Ireland? Uh, yeah, nothing. And, you know, that we've had these meetings and, and, you know, once in a while, scientists get together and try to decide what should be the ethical uh, decisions they make with respect to modifying genes and so forth. So I think that people have known that this is something that we should be talking about. Um, but we haven't gotten to the point where we feel a real urgency. And I think that that's kind of where we are getting. It's the same thing with climate change, right? We've known about it for a long time. We just haven't had a sense of urgency. And I wonder what will be that trigger in the genetics field that all of a sudden will motivate people to really take this very seriously and start putting policies in place immediately. The one lingering thing from the book, and there's an amazing number of beautiful stories in it, is I was left with this impression that we've had this very US-centric view on science. And that is not going to exactly fly when it comes to genetics. That the cultural approach to some of the work that we're talking about, especially uh, gene editing of embryos, is going to be approached by different societies in really different ways. And if we don't acknowledge that ahead of time and and start talking that language, we're going to be in a world of misunderstanding. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, even even just science in general is is changing as data become share, you know, more shareable, and there's this all this open access. Um, I think, yeah, I think I think we are going to get to a point where you know the the science that comes out of the U.S. is not going to be the majority of the science that's being done in the world. Uh, I don't even I mean we might have already be there, and so yeah, we can't just assume that everyone will have the same uh, you know ethical and political considerations that we do. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chan, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, Brendan Ryan, and Anonymous. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com where we post show notes and other nice things. You can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own gene sequences, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. And once again, today's episode was sponsored by Audible with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash minds. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.